Hello everyone, it's April 24th, 2018. This episode, we speculate on how SpaceX plans to use a party balloon to bring back an upper stage. And we talk about Orbital ATK's Omega launch vehicle. No tweets from their CEO about party balloons. Let's get the party started and lift off. Ed, we have third the tower. Welcome to episode 155 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. How you doing, David? All right. So it's been two weeks and I haven't asked, but I have to ask now, have you watched any of the new Expanse series? Because this is my uh, Expanse talk time. Nope. Sorry. Oh, you should totally be watching it. I know. Uh, of course, it's just two episodes in. One thing that's cool is that I, I've gotten my father into watching the Expanse and he's already blown oh, through all two seasons in the past <laughs> three days. So that's done, I guess. Uh, <laughs> I mean, we still have a third season, but that's going to take a couple months. Get him into the books. That'll take a little longer. Or I just find some new tv series i don't know i'm looking for stuff you know because he doesn't uh watch much tv or if he does it's usually like you know just like old movies or something i I don't know what he's doing so i figured i should take the reins on this one and maybe introduce him to something interesting like i don't know i'm thinking next should be stranger things because i mean who who doesn't love that you kind of can't go wrong there right i haven't actually watched the second season i watched like the first episode and i like ended up not having time to finish watching it you can't beat the first season because it was just so perfect i think that's kind of one of those perfect seasons of television but i mean the second season is still really good so i don't have any complaints stranger things is a better 80s nostalgia show than ready player one. Oh, probably i actually have not seen the movie have you seen that and i, no. and I haven't read the book either I've, re- I've read the book a couple times and it just gets worse every time but uh you haven't watched <laughs> the movie either it gets the book gets worse every time yeah because like the first time you're like oh yeah nostalgia like this is really cool like these are all the things that i really like and then you start realizing that like it's only like it's only male pop culture there's there's no female pop culture and then you realize that just making a bunch of pop culture references isn't actually that entertaining or inventive. And then you realize that the protagonist is a real asshole who after being explicitly told not to stalk somebody decides to stalk them. And then, you know, I mean, like he's a real nice guy, you know, and it's just like every time you read it, it just gets worse and worse and you notice more and more things. And it's like, yeah, the socially awkward, creepy, nice guy. Yeah. There's actually a term for it. uh, Adorkable misogyny. Okay. Um, like that's the what's it called in, when a meme is in a movie uh, a trope that's the the name of the trope. Yeah, I I I haven't read it now. I, I kind of don't want to because I kind of figured that it it was. I mean, it's mostly just the overt nostalgia, like you know they're pandering, and I don't like that. And that doesn't make for a good story. I mean, it it's it's kind of. I hope it's had its run, but there's just so much of it. In the same way that there's been too much uh, postmodern cynicism, like some might say, in story, which that has kind of taken a turn, and and now we're in like you know the age of nostalgia, and that's also not what it means to tell a good story. Uh, you can't just throw references at people and expect them to like it just for that. I mean, you can for some well, people. Well, you you can, and and it and it really really worked in Ready Player One. Like a lot of people really love just having a bunch of references. And I mean, the first time around, I loved it so much that I was like, oh, maybe. I'll go through and edit the audiobook and I actually started doing this and inserting all of the audio clues that are mentioned and like making the audiobook deep and I got like it I stopped very quickly. <laughs> yeah. Sam in the chat says, from what I've seen, redoing my bathroom grout is a better 80s nostalgia show than Ready Player One. <laughs> Probably not wrong. This episode of the Orbital Mechanics is brought to you by Audible. Brought to you by not Player One. Right. So anyway, that's enough 
film and book talk. Let's move on to this week in spaceflight history. And unfortunately, this week, I don't think we have any winners. You have some partial ones. Yeah, we have two partial winners, but nobody quite figured out what I was getting at, which I, I knew it was going to be a tough one. But yeah, I guess I let you guys down. So our partial credit winners are Anderson DeNova and Valentin Frank. Uh, it took the old hats to even get this one partially right. So the clue from last week was astronauts don't cry. They get things in their eye, maybe sweat or, or the, the sun. Anyway, this week in spaceflight history is the 24th of April, 1972. It was the liftoff of Apollo 16 from the moon, or you know, specifically the LEM from the moon. So where did I get this uh, idiotic clue? <laughs> I'm going to read uh, two excerpts from the the radio calls. So this starts at 772631. Uh, LMP. Okay, RCS, you're looking good. Water's looking good. What's wrong, John? Commander, something's in my eye. Pilot. Oh, Commander, I got it. And then uh, a couple minutes later, how's your eye, John? Commander, okay. Pilot, what's wrong? Commander, I think it's, uh, I'm sweating. Pilot, hmm. Commander, it's okay now. Sure? Yeah. Was it, was the sun shining in it? Yeah. Okay, Charlie, two minutes. So, you know, John Young got something in his eye, but it, like, he gave, there were so many reasons why he was crying. You know, oh, it's, it's something in my eye. Uh, no, it's, uh, it's sweat in my eye. Oh, it's the sun in my eye. And, uh, I, I really, really like the, Valentin Frank in the chat says, is there a stage direction for a soulful penny whistle solo in the background of that transcript? Like, yeah, that's the thing is like, it, it really seems like, you know, John's getting ready to leave the moon and he's a little upset about it. And I, I'm sure that's not actually what happened, but that's what happened in my mind. And, you know, you can't convince me that that I'm wrong. So uh, Apollo 16, right? It's the second to last time that we're going to the moon. So we, we had done a lot, but there were still things that we wanted to get done and in particular, one of the things that we wanted to get done was get good footage of the LEM ascending or the ascent stage ascending from the moon. And there's this kind of famous footage from the moon surface looking at the LEM as the ascent stage lifts off um, and the camera pans up. And that's really beautiful. That came from Apollo 17 because Apollo 15 and 16, the I think they were the J type missions. Um, the ones that actually brought uh, a rover, um, they both tried to get this footage. But of course, the challenge is that you're having to have a delay um, as the cameras commanded from Earth. And so for 15 and 16, they were able to capture the ascent, but the camera angle was not right. It didn't track properly. And on Apollo 17, they absolutely nailed it and got it right but so i've got a bunch of you know quote-unquote failures here for apollo 16 because it's you know the second to last mission we're trying to get these things done so the first failure is the liftoff footage still fantastic footage there'll be a link in the show notes um it just doesn't quite track properly second failure um quote-unquote failure was the intention was to dispose of the ascent stage uh, by crashing it into the moon. That's how we got rid of all of them. Unfortunately, they forgot to flip a switch to put the LEM into the correct mode. So they uh, separated the CSM from the LEM ascent stage and the LEM starts tumbling because it's not controlled and it's just dead. So they kind of just had to leave it. Luckily, the moon's gravitational field is so lumpy that nothing can stay in orbit unless it's in one of four specific uh, orbital uh, inclinations. 
So the the Lem ends up crashing into the moon, but not in the way that they wanted. It was an uncontrolled disposal. So the moon's gravity is so lumpy that you need to be in just one of four types of orbits or yeah. four types of inclinations. That's really surprising to me. I didn't know that. I figured oh, really? if you had a good enough orbit, then it would be not unlike Earth. Is I guess it's just because the, the moon is so much smaller and so much more irregular in shape compared it, to the Earth. Well, I mean, its its surface is fairly regular, but its density is very irregular so its gravitational field is very very lumpy and so the the way that you're thinking is totally natural right like that's that's a common sense assumption um, and it's one that we didn't even understand while we were going to the moon. Um, so the second failure is a sub-satellite insertion. So they, uh, after separating from the ascent stage, they basically threw a satellite overboard. Um, it was called the Particles and Field Subsatellite. And first off, it was intended to be put into a specific orbit, um, which required um, the CSM to make an orbital altitude change that they ended up canceling. So so they put it into the quote-unquote wrong orbit. Um, and then once it was there, it wasn't in one of these stable orbits anyway. So as they watch it over the next couple of weeks, it starts changing its orbital height uh, and inclination in a fairly random manner. And they're like, what the heck is going on? How come it's not orbiting? And yeah, it just wasn't in one of those four. So they had an intended lifespan. It crashed halfway through that intended lifespan. Um, so there's your third you know, quote unquote failure from Apollo 16. I guess I see what you're saying. It's just that the moon, and again, I mean, I say it's because it's so small, but basically because it's so small, it can't pull itself into a nice uniform density like the earth can, because I can't imagine the earth being that big and having those kinds of irregularities. That's that's something that, you know, small asteroids have. And I'm, I'm just thinking that the moon is small enough um, that you could have those types of irregularities, but I don't, I, I don't think it would be possible on something as large as the earth, but I mean, I could be wrong. That's interesting i don't know if that's true dan in the chat says um it's mostly because it's solid inside so you know once those density lumps are made they're kind of they're kind of set earth also has a an asymmetric or or an, a, a non-uniform gravitational field have you seen uh the geoid yeah just google the geoid and you'll find this representation of the earth if it was uniformly dense so yeah, um, Dan saying that yeah, that's if that's a cause, it's a very very distal cause because um, size affects how quickly an object solidifies, which which makes sense. But yeah, I, I don't think it's necessarily because of the moon's size that it's so lumpy. I know that there are certain shapes that you can't have that are so big, like like mm -hmm. you couldn't have you know like a potato shaped asteroid that right. was the size of the Earth. That's right. not possible. That's just too much. That's just too much. Yeah, gravity. those mountains so it, are too high. Yeah, so it would collapse back in on itself. So I was kind of assuming that maybe the moon was a similar case, and just because it was so much smaller, you had much larger you know mountaintops and much deeper valleys that you that. Wouldn't well, be here's the thing. So the surface of the moon is very close to being properly round, right? Um, mm -hmm. it, it's density changes, not shape changes. Um, but what, what's interesting is I could be wrong here, but I believe that actually the size of the moon is actually important because it allows um, smaller density changes to be more dramatically impactful on orbits. So I think you're close, but I don't I, I think it's a um, it's a scale issue that has to do with um, those density changes relative to the rest of the planet as opposed to this the size of the not the planet the size of the moon 
um, directly impacting whether it is lumpy or not. Yeah. Yeah. Re- really interesting though. So what is, uh, what's our clue for next week? Yeah. So let's, let's see how next week goes. Uh, the clue for next week is in 1976, paving the way for putting Simon into space. Paving the way for putting Simon into space in 1976. Uh, if you think you know what that is in reference to, give us a tweet with the hashtag this week SF and good luck. Good luck, everybody. First up in the news here, uh, SpaceX wants to use a, say it with me now, Balut to recover stage two. Did I say that right? Yeah, ba- uh, Balut or Balut. So it's uh, a portmanteau of balloon and parachute. So I say Balut. So the first tweet from Elon was, this is going to sound crazy, but dot, 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 um, which is a great tweet. So he knows how to build suspense. Oh, and then then there are like five minutes between these first two. So <laughs> He's doing this intentionally. Yeah. Uh, So then apparently five minutes later, he tweets, uh, SpaceX will try to bring rocket upper stage back from orbital velocity using a giant party balloon. So, uh, and then I guess, I don't know how long after that, a couple minutes later, right? Because this is another following tweet. He tweets, and then land on a bouncy house. And then there's a, well, I guess somebody tweeted back with a picture of a first stage coming back onto an actual bouncy castle out in the middle of the ocean. I suspect it's not going to look like that, but... Well, remember that Mr. Steven was supposed to have a bouncy castle on it as well, and it has a net at the moment. So this is all we have so far is just these tweets, right? Like, there's been nothing else officially released, just something... This is all that we know. Yeah, I mean, it's as official as... As it, as it gets. You have the notes here that he tweeted that this would reduce the ballistic coefficient by two orders of magnitude. Somebody on Reddit, um, we'll have a link to uh, to this Reddit thread, but somebody on Reddit calculated that the implication there is that the balut will be 10 times the diameter of the second stage. So that's 37 meters in diameter. <laughs> Um, given, you know, there's a, there's a bunch of ways that drag actually gets calculated out, but roughly we're talking a 37 meter diameter balloon in space. This is one of those scenarios when they talk about at SpaceX, how it doesn't matter who you are, that anyone can approach Mr. Musk and say, Hey, I have this idea and I feel that someone maybe did. And then he said, Hey, you know what? That sounds doable. Let's try it out. Cause where did this come from? I mean, yeah, I don't think we've ever heard of this before. So, I mean, if this is something that's feasible i'm surprised that no one else has ever tried that previously well i mean people have tried this before um specifically nasa has done supersonic balloons right but to bring an upper stage back is that what right (laughs) right that's kind of the thing that's way out there yeah or you know what actually okay so here's um but here's an article from jpl uh, talking about using balut technology to aero capture. And then I'm also thinking of the very high altitude supersonic decelerator. Yeah, but that's not a balut, is it? That would be a... Right, that was just a parachute, wasn't it? Yeah, so LDSD had the um, the inflatable decelerator, but then they also had a parachute on the most recent mission that, like, tore into pieces almost immediately. Because I'm thinking of a balut as being something that you drag behind you, but the supersonic mm-hmm. decelerator, right, is in front of the spacecraft and it yeah, kind of provides so, shielding. Yeah, so the LDSD was also, I think they were also hoping to make it a heat shield as well as, oh no, I guess that's not true. Yeah, I don't think it was ever intended to be a heat shield. I don't know how it could be. But just just because that wasn't a heat shield doesn't mean that a balut is always towed behind you. Um, you can also have a balut that's like attached to your spacecraft. So, so that I, I think the LDSD might 
might count as a rough mm-hmm. balut. But then here, here's the really crazy thing. This, this uh, Reddit thread got out of hand real quick. Um, so Phil Plate replied uh, to Elon and said, I'm not sure that using helium will help it stay up in space, though. Hashtag science. Somebody actually did some calculations and found out that it's actually not crazy to think about lifting the mass of a second stage using buoyancy. Apparently, the calculation is that about 700 kilograms of helium is enough to actually lift a second stage. Um, So at sea level, that's 4,000 cubic meters. And that, that's enough to actually lift one of these things. So if you were to fill this balut with helium, you could dramatically reduce the terminal velocity of the second stage. I'm not saying that they would actually, you know, want to lift it or, you know, loft it, I guess. But like you could you could really slow this thing down quite a lot because the second stage is tiny compared to the rest of the rocket. And so obviously there's some ballooning technology out there that can be used to help uh, direct this thing in the right direction. Yeah, Dan in the chat says they probably already have a bunch of helium on board anyway, so you can you know use up some of that. I read some of the comments in the subreddit and someone, someone had brought up using the helium uh, that's already on board, but you'd have to figure out a way to get it into the balloon. But I mean, that might not be that big of an engineering problem. Yeah, you just need a, a probably a second uh, a second tap on that on that yeah. tank, right? So as I think about it, it seems to me more that this would be used more for creating drag, much more so than buoyancy, because right. like, if you're in the upper atmosphere, well, I don't think yeah. the buoyancy matters too much. Yeah, not, so. You're right, right, not at all. <laughs> but that just makes me wonder, because, I mean, we're talking about a parachute, and a second stage is going obviously very fast. Um, how does a, just how does that work? I mean, because I don't see it reducing the velocity so much that it doesn't start to take on some huge amounts of heat. Right. So the thing about reentry is that you're balancing two forces, right? You're balancing how quickly you're slowing down and how much heat you're picking up. So ideally, you could do all of your velocity reduction at very high altitude and then just kind of drift through the rest of the atmosphere like a leaf. But the problem with that is that there's not a lot to break against up high. And so using this, all it's doing is is it's increasing the drag coefficient. So what that does is it means that you're going to slow yourself down at a much higher altitude and give yourself a much longer period of time to do this reduction in speed, right? And apply that acceleration to the spacecraft. So, I mean, that this is a helpful thing. It's it's kind of insane. Uh, oh, yeah, Dan, Dan points out this is kind of what the shuttle did, right? By doing those big S-turns way up high and, and burning off a lot of... I might be missing something in terms of my basic physics understanding here but the one thing that i do know is that they do have to burn off all the energy i mean one way or another so you might stay higher up in the atmosphere but you still have to shed all that velocity in the form Mm -hmm. of heat right i mean there might be some other means of getting rid of the energy but i think it's i think it's just yeah supersonic retropropulsion is the only other thing right yeah (laughs) yeah so it's still going to pick up those temperatures which means that it would just have to radiate that heat away but it has much much longer to radiate that heat away right and so i'm just wondering is it actually long enough for it to do that can it stay up there long enough and come in slowly enough or you know like over a long enough period of time for it to continually radiate that heat without having too much of a heat soak dan's also pointing out that you know having a gigantic balute also gives you much more surface area to radiate from so i mean these are these are both good things right so um you and i don't have the analytical skills to do this yeah yeah. um 
but this this sounds pretty promising to me given that you know we've already been looking at low density deceleration devices you know mm-hmm. um this kind of seems like a logical way to do it and it's it's really cool to see spacex thinking about doing it because you know the ldsd is amazing but it's taking forever between missions yeah so it's super interesting idea yeah just, I mean, if you didn't think that landing the, the fairings was crazy enough, I mean, this is just just completely <laughs> right. out of left field, and now he right. wants to bring the second stage back, which is awesome because that, that would, I mean, I don't think anyone anticipated the Falcon 9 being a fully reusable vehicle because that was never, you know, the idea in the first place, but now it might be. Well, I mean, they, they've kind of talked about it along the way, and everybody knows that this is what we have to do as a species, right? If, if we're going to spend a lot of time and energy in space, we have to be 100% reusable. Um, but yeah, at, at this point, it's kind of interesting that they're talking about doing this with Falcon 9 as opposed to just uh, BFR and BFS. So yeah, it's really interesting. Yep. Crazy idea, but we'll, we'll see. Let's move on then to the next story. So uh, second up, Orbital ATK announces Omega, formerly the next generation launch system. Um, so do you know why it's called Omega and it has a capital A at the end of it? Omega? No, I don't. Yeah, because it's orbital ATK. So the O and the A are the first two letters of the name of the company. Boy. Yeah. So I, mean, I thought that was kind of clever. I thought maybe they were trying to copy SpaceX with a capital X. At the end. <laughs> maybe it had something to do with that. But no, it's because it's orbital ATK. So capital O, capital A. Yeah, I, I need some... Uh some graphic design work before that makes sense to me i mean like it makes sense but like but yeah i guess it's just omega not omega this news was announced at the 34th annual space symposium i think that's what it's called in colorado springs colorado which we should have announced that last week on upcoming spaceflight events i didn't see it yeah we're idiots though so yeah yeah but then again that's kind of like saying if anyone wants to go here you you know but you you probably right. need more forewarning than that and you already know about it if you are going right. so yeah really this announcement was just the name and that they had settled on their upper stage um this is an effort to compete with the air force for three new launch vehicles that the air force wants to select sometime this summer it has two different variations there is the intermediate class and the heavy class i didn't get the numbers on what they could lift but um obviously they would you know fit intermediate and heavy class both versions can hold i believe six strap-on rocket boosters they have two solid stages and then that third upper stage which is going to be in rl10c and i think it's actually the uh, the rl10c dash something like dash five dash one and i could not find what the differences but these are just minor differences that have to do with i believe just um certain parts being 3d printed parts and that's the only difference as far as i know i don't know what other modifications were made um, because there's about 12 different versions of the rl10 engine so Nefa in the chat is saying that the intermediate class is roughly in atlas 5 and the heavy can do like seven tons direct to geo and that there's more information about this on uh the miko podcast so yeah, yeah. so we'll have a, a link in the chat thanks stan for pointing this out apparently um I, I haven't listened to this episode, uh, but apparently Anthony suggested that maybe they're calling it Omega because it's the last rocket they're ever going to make. I, don't I, think I think that's, that's a bit on the, the nose, but, but yeah. I, I hardly support this kind of wild speculation. I doubt it. I suppose it's possible because they have some, you know, pretty hard competition these days and you have solid boosters and two stages that are also solids and that's a lot of vibration and uh, given how large uh, the 500XL version is I've read some speculation on whether or not they're going to be able to you know handle some of 
the vibrational loads that something like that would have just because you know solids are very they're just like very violent types of motors you know and not reusable so it might shake itself apart yeah but i don't think it, let's I, not I don't say that happen. but yeah on the verge of maybe shaking apart whatever its cargo might be so the rl10c has been selected for the third stage they were considering the be3u um, but they didn't want to take the gamble on a new engine plus i just think that they want to fast track this thing but um the be3u that is what the new glenn is going to have mm -hmm. on its upper stage and we discussed that i think two episodes ago so that actually would be the faster more economical choice rather than testing a vacuum rated be4 engine but that was never in the works for this particular vehicle. So yeah, they just went with the good old RL10, which is tried and true. Good specific impulse, I'm sure better than the BE3U. So that's, I mean, not a whole lot to say, but we now have a cool name for a mostly solid launch vehicle. You know, we'll see how it does. But uh, they think that they'll be done with propulsion ground system testing in 2019, and the first flight will be in 2021. So I guess that's not too long as new launch vehicles go i don't know i don't remember how long this has been in the works we we discussed it i think maybe two years ago actually yeah before it was named omega right so there's your little bit of orbital atk news All right, let's do some short and sweet. And what is our first one? Okay, so first up, Lockheed Martin wants to reduce Orion costs by 50%. And it's a little bit of a road to get there. But uh, the contractor is working on a NASA proposal for a later quote-unquote build-to-print version of the vehicle. They expect around a 30% cost reduction between EM1 and EM2. The idea is to reuse various vehicle components and eventually reuse the capsule itself, which would allow for for a perhaps 50% cost reduction. However, uh, this wouldn't be until EM7 and would be using the EM4 vehicle structure. Lockheed Martin Vice President Mike Haas said it would be well into the 2020s before part of an Orion is reflown. I haven't even heard any mention of what EM7 would be, so... Yeah. I'm going to be shocked if an EM7 actually flies, but okay. Yeah. So next up, uh, not quite business time. Uh, so the first commercial launch of Rocket Lab's Electron was delayed during a wet dress rehearsal due to a minor fueling issue. CEO Peter Beck tweeted uh, that there was some unusual behavior with a motor controller in one of the first stage engines. To be extra safe, the launch was delayed for further investigation. The initial launch window opened on April 19th with a two-week length, uh, but Rocket Lab will shoot for a new window that will open up in about three weeks and for anyone who doesn't know not quite business time that's a reference to the first mission being called business time which i believe is a reference to flight of the concords uh fellow kiwis i think that that's where that comes from if you've never listened to business time by flight of the concords it's a fun little song okay stand by we're looking at it questions comments and correction burns and this week we have one correction from last week's guest so we got this correction after we had recorded so i figured why not put it in this week's correction burns uh so yeah this came from tess caswell our guest last week it was one of us who brought up uh leakage of the atmosphere on board station over time how you detect it all that kind of stuff and um i don't remember do you remember what she said initially that it was just from one of the modules on the american side well specifically i was asking about atmosphere venting waste products that that weren't needed and she's like yeah i don't i don't think we really do that if 
if we don't have to. And that's where that came from. So after we had recorded, uh, she had just remembered something else. Just a quote here. It says, uh, with regard to ISIS overboard leakage, I did forget that the Russian CO2 scrubber Volzduch works similarly to Sidra and vents CO2 overboard. So that is another small source of cabin air loss over time. Along those lines, I found a paper on NTRS about trends in cabin air loss and how they are measured from nitrogen loss over time. Uh, and then she included uh, she included a PDF. So I guess we're going to put that in the show notes and then anyone can take a look at it. Yeah. That'll explain a little bit better how you measure nitrogen loss over time. Which um, And as I think she pointed out or I pointed out, yeah, you would want to measure nitrogen because that's what doesn't change. Um, you can't really measure O2 since if someone took just one breath, that would change the levels you have and of course we're talking about very small minute leakages but yeah thanks for that correction okay let's move on to upcoming spaceflight events we just got two our first one is on april 25th and that is a rocket with a breeze km upper stage and that's launching sentinel 3b sentinel 3b is a is the second in a constellation of earth observation satellites developed by the European Space Agency, and this is to provide real-time data for global monitoring. 2A and 2B have, have already been launched, and these ones are equipped with the optical uh, the optical laser. You just said it, and I can't remember. Communications link or something like that. Yeah, the optical communications laser, um, which is really neat, but I don't think that this one has it. I can't find any information uh, of that particular instrument being on this one, so maybe this is uh, just the observation satellite with no new experimental laser communication technology on board, but it would be cool if it did have it. Um, so this is launching from... Uh, the Plesetsk Cosmodrome in Russia, and as I said, that's uh, an April 25th launch with a, looks like an instantaneous launch window at 1757 UTC, so that's whatever that is on the East Coast. Like one, um, or almost two o'clock. So that's a pretty good time, and, and you can watch that one on a live stream if you so choose. Just go to launchlibrary.net to find it, because it's a long URL. I'm not going to read that one. <laughs> All right, and then next up, this isn't in launch library. It's only on Spaceflight now. Um, so we'll see if this actually happens. But hopefully we're going to see a Long March 11 fly um, Juhai, I think is the tones. If it's if it's the same as the city, then it's Juhai. Uh, but Juhai 1 is a remote sensing satellite for Juhai Orbita Control Engineering, so probably named after the city. So that's flying on April 26th out of Juchuan, and we don't have a time as of now. And Launch Library says TBD in April, so that, that one may or may not actually be flying. And then we have another one, or another spaceflight event that's uh, just after our next show comes out. So I'm going to go ahead and read it this week anyway. Um, it's the release of Dragon CRS-14 from the ISS. So coverage is going to start at 10 a.m. Eastern Time on Wednesday, May 2nd, and release is scheduled at 10.22 a.m. Eastern Time. And with that, we have concluded the upcoming spaceflight events. Then I guess that means we will deorbit and we will cue the Ronald Jenkins music, all of which is brought to you by Ronald Jenkins. Check him out at ronaldjenkins.com. I said that three times. And uh, some of which is brought to you by Tim Dodd, the everyday astronaut. If you liked this episode, please review us on iTunes and Stitcher. And if you enjoyed our show, please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash 
podcast thanks to our $5 and up Patreon supporters in the Ground Control chat room listening to the show live. Yeah, and so we have a brand new $10 ADCO level supporter, Valentin Frank. Thank you so much, um, not just for guessing correctly almost every week, but uh, for chipping in some cash. We really appreciate it. Also, you can connect with us on Twitter and Reddit at Orbital Podcast. You can send questions and comments to info at theorbitalmechanics.com. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, please visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. Be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. And that's it. So we will see you next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. Bye.